This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The shadows hung low, and candle flames flickered in the wind as Amara lagged behind her grandparents. They were on their way to the 15th and final day of the fall festival of Pishum Ben, Ancestors Day. It was a terrible way to spend a school break. The Cambodian spirit world was one of constant anguish because it was meant to be temporary, a brief stop on the way to another phase of reincarnation. But sometimes people got stuck. Pishum Ben was the time to pray for them, to save them, from a fate worse than fading into nothingness, becoming a hungry ghost. Amara had discovered that her grandparents meant the term hungry ghost quite literally. She spent whole days cooking food for her dead ancestors, roast fish, sticky rice, and baiben, little sesame rice balls meant to be thrown into shaded areas around the temple. They were small morsels for those spirits with no living relatives to make them full meals anymore. The 15th night was when spirits with exceptionally bad karma would emerge, seeking prayers and food. They feared the light, scuttling away from it like cockroaches. Amara was told to throw Bai Ben into the darkness for them. The shadowy parts of the temple scared her, but she did as she was told, tossing the rice away. The rice balls didn't seem like much of a meal. She hoped the ghosts wouldn't be too hungry. She tried to make a game of it, aiming for a different part of the temple stone each time. Then, one of the balls froze in midair. She blinked, confused. Then, it dropped. Puzzled, she threw another ball. It fell cleanly this time, settling on the ground. Then, it rolled towards her, as if it was pushed. Amara shook her head vigorously. She was tired, that was all. She threw another rice ball at the temple stone, just to show she wasn't afraid. Then, the darkness opened wide and swallowed her. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Cambodia's Kampong Chunang Ghost House, otherwise known as The House the Ghost Bought, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. You can find episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Haunted Places for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. 
Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as all other ParCast originals on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. In the Kampon Chenang province of Cambodia, there's a highway known simply as National Road 5. It runs beside the Tonle Sap Lake and River towards Phnom Penh, the capital of the country. The highway was woefully underdeveloped and badly maintained, with recovery only beginning around 2015. Cambodia has lagged behind its neighbors in terms of economic development for much of its recent history. Very few countries have been as traumatized and as frozen in time as Cambodia was under the Khmer Rouge. As the Cold War simmered and Vietnam was napalmed over and over again, the Communist Party in Cambodia quietly rose in numbers, eventually taking over the whole country in 1975. The war crimes and human rights violations of the Khmer Rouge's leader, Pol Pot, are impossible to catalog in full, and it's estimated that over one million people lost their lives in the so-called killing fields. In 1979, the Vietnamese army and another small Khmer communist sect the Khmer United Front for National Salvation invaded Cambodia, igniting a decade-long war that displaced over 600,000 people. Peace talks only began in 1989, and a ceasefire wasn't officially enforced until 1991. Two years later, alongside National Road 5, a young woman built a small one-room house. She struggled to sell it thanks to her high asking price, $3,000. A villager joked that only a ghost would pay such a price. According to local legend, one did. A couple living in the house is believed to have agreed to sell the home to a spirit that appeared to them in their sleep. Believing the interaction to be a dream and nothing more, they didn't move out. Even when the $3,000 in gold appeared on their doorstep one night. They told themselves they would figure out what to do in the morning, but when the sun rose, they realized they were lying in a field beside the house, alongside all their possessions. All evidence of their occupation was gone. The place was spotless, and there was no dust inside. To this day, the house remains unoccupied, and no matter what horrors may have occurred there, it is always spotless. Donna had always known she was destined for something far more interesting than life in the suburbs. She wanted adventure and intrigue, and she hoped she could find it for a reasonable price, which is how she found herself in Southeast Asia. She stood out with her artfully sun-kissed tan and bleach-blonde hair, an American adrift. But she soon met a fellow expat named Sam, and they started to build a life together. They'd been backpacking through Cambodia when Donna found the house of her dreams. It sat on stilts with a steep staircase in front. The mint green paint job and red roof stuck out against the sea of lush green fields that surrounded it. 
she'd tracked down the family that owned it and made an offer to rent the space. They accepted and offered to arrange the appropriate blessings and introductions to the spirits on the property. Donna declined gracefully. Everyone was just so quirky here. She had five days to wait until they could move in. But when she slept, all she saw was the house. She knew there were no lights around the outside of the shack, but in her dreams, the area glowed. Slashes of green cut across the dark of night. The house called her to come inside. Donna walked up the small pathway. She couldn't drag her eyes away from the soft haze around the house. Her foot faltered on the steps. She caught herself on the railing just in time, her face inches from the edge of the wood. Suddenly, sandaled feet were at her eyeline. She looked up, the muscles in her neck stretching impossibly. But there was no one standing in front of her. She was alone. Her vertebrae began to pop as her neck extended and extended. The pain was sudden and hot, tearing at her skin. She collapsed in on herself, her neck falling forward, bones disappearing. Her head hit one step, then two more, before it came to a stop. She was eye level with her own torso. Donna woke with a start, her hands flying to her neck. The skin was firm. She could feel the notches of her spinal column. Everything was where it should be. She tried to go back to sleep, but every time she closed her eyes, she saw that otherworldly glow and felt the hard bite of the wood against her forehead. The house did not call to Sam in the same way. He snored beside her, blissfully unaware of its power. Night after night, her neck flopped down the steps, and yet she still had faith that the nightmare would pass. The home was too perfect to not enjoy. The steps were easier to climb in the bright daylight. They dropped their backpacks onto the floor and started unpacking almost immediately. She put a little Buddha on the window that she'd purchased at a night market a few weeks back. She didn't believe in blessings in the literal sense, but something about him made her feel safe. Maybe it was because he glowed in the dark. Sam brought in a little desk and a bed frame. They carried the mattress up together, doing that awkward domestic moving dance. Donna smiled at Sam. Then she slipped on the stairs. Her legs fell out from under her, hitting the corner of the wood hard across her shins. Donna grit her teeth and forced herself back up to her feet. She couldn't do anything about her injury until she got out from under this mattress. She staggered the rest of the way up the stairs and dropped the mattress to the floor as soon as she cleared the doorway. A trail of blood droplets traced her path from the landing. As Sam awkwardly wedged the mattress into the bed frame, Donna sat down to examine her legs. Long strips of skin had been torn away. Splinters stuck out in all directions. Dried blood had caked onto her feet and the front of her ankles. She had Sam bring her their first aid kit. The alcohol burned her skin, and her vision whited out every now and then. But eventually, she plucked each and every splinter out of her leg. 
When the wound was all clean, she bent over her body to further examine it. Squinting, she could just barely make out a jagged set of teeth marks at the edges of her skin. Sam suggested it was just an animal she hadn't noticed earlier. They were surrounded by nature. When she headed into the village for supplies, she asked if there were any strange creatures in the woods. The man behind the counter shook slightly as he told her all creatures were strange. She must make sure she'd pleased the spirits. She smiled at him and said she would, but there were no spirits in her house to please. She'd saged it. It was fine. She went home and dropped her haul of produce onto the table. Sam asked where the market was, and she raised her hand to point down the road. Her finger stopped in midair, touching something soft. It felt like skin, but there was nothing there. She pushed again until her fingers broke through whatever it was. Little dots of blood fell to the floor. The smell of rotting meat was overwhelming. Donna felt vomit rise in her throat. Suddenly, her Buddha shattered. Confused, Sam quickly collected the pieces into a bag and walked it outside. Donna should have been alone, but she knew she wasn't. She turned slowly. The woman in front of her may have been human once, but she wasn't anymore. She had no lower body to speak of, just a head in midair with part of a chest. Soft eyes and long black hair, pouty red lips. She could have been a movie star, but the skin had been torn away from her neck. Her trachea was visible to the world. Her heart sat directly underneath it, still pumping blood. Several stray drops fell to the floor. Underneath the chest was a stomach. Laced in and around the chest were the woman's intestines. She was horrifying. She was beautiful. Donna couldn't move. The strange woman floated towards her with a wicked smile on her lips. She opened her mouth. Donna waited for the woman to speak, but no words came out. Pain carved its way through Donna's torso. She looked down and saw teeth marks. The flesh was falling away from her skin, her organs on display for the woman. The mysterious woman licked her lips, and then she ate. Cambodia is considered a least developed country by the United Nations, racked by war, violence, and corruption. It's joined by nations like Afghanistan, Rwanda, Yemen, Laos, and Ethiopia. Both Khmer spirituality and Khmer identity as a whole is still recovering from the violence of its past. The same violence is reflected in their legends. The app, or Krosu, as it's better known in Thai, is a hungry ghost that manifests as the head of a beautiful long-haired woman with only her organs trailing below her. There have been several reported sightings of the spirit throughout Southeast Asia, 
and she stars in several Cambodian horror films, including My Mother is App, the first Cambodian film made after the fall of the Khmer Rouge. But the App is not the only sort of spirit believed to inhabit Cambodia. Many ghosts from this part of the world look human until their bodies start to stretch and expand at will. Up next, we move into the circumstances surrounding the house's legend and meet the couple foolish enough to overstay their welcome with the ghost. Now back to the story. In a lot of Western ghost stories, the way you defeat a spirit is to discover what it wants, solve its problem, and it'll go away. But that's not the case when it comes to South and East Asian spirits. They're motivated by primal desires, most prominently hunger, endless, insatiable hunger, which makes one wonder, why is the spirit that resides in the Kampong Chenang ghost house so protective of its home. Belle had been chasing ghosts all across Cambodia, figuratively speaking anyways. She just wanted records of her family, but the Khmer Rouge had changed so much about the landscape that she was having trouble with both her limited understanding of the language and the unfamiliar filing system. Her boyfriend Arun had warned her that things work differently here, she had educated herself when it came to being respectful and observant of tradition, but bureaucracy was something that no one could truly prepare for, especially when she was so personally invested. Still, they found a lead in Kampong Chenang, and Belle wasn't leaving until she learned more about her family. They were planning on just renting a place, but then Belle had seen the house. It looked so much like the ones her grandmother had told her about. Staircase straight up the front, one room. The colors were different, brighter than she'd imagined, but the feeling of familiarity was so strong. So she bought it. She didn't have the money, but she needed the house, more than she needed anything. They thanked the spirits for allowing them to share the space. Arun set up a small spirit house to keep them comfortable and safe. She'd heard about the white couple that had died here, and she wasn't taking any chances. Arun told her to check the toilet for any lingering spirits. She raised an eyebrow at him. That was one she hadn't heard before. He stayed firm. It wasn't a joke. Belle took a deep breath, and then she examined the toilet. It was clean, just a porcelain bowl and some water. She stared for a few moments not entirely sure what she was checking for. Then, there was movement in the bowl. Belle leaned in closer. Small ripples in the water began to grow into bigger ones. The scent of bleach was overwhelming. Then, the water itself emerged from the bowl in the shape of a hand reaching towards her. The hand of water forced itself into Belle's mouth. She couldn't breathe. There was water spilling up her throat, flooding her cheeks. Liquid poured from her nose into the toilet. Her body hunched over further. She tried to force the water out of her mouth, but it would not leave. 
It clung to her insides, stretching the skin of her face. Her hands gripped the porcelain hard. The water kept coming, sliding up and down her insides. The hand in the bowl made a fist, and she felt the tightening of her organs in response. And then it let go. Arun called from the other room, asking if she was okay. Water covered the floor. All of it had left her system. The hand was gone. She took deep gulps of air. With a shaky breath, she told him there might be a spirit in the toilet. He arranged a blessing, and the two of them continued unpacking. Throughout the move, Belle felt a twinge in her lungs. She avoided the bathroom if possible, using the one in the village instead. Arun got ready for bed first. Then it was Belle's turn. She washed her face with the washcloth, not brave enough to tempt fate with the faucet. She told herself she was just being silly, gazing up into the mirror with a mix of disappointment and frustration. But then her face disappeared replaced by a curtain of long black hair. It was gone in an instant, but she had seen it. She knew she did. She curled into bed, trying not to think of the woman she'd seen in the mirror, the woman who couldn't have been her. The night passed, and she was no longer sure if she was awake or asleep, or frozen in amber someplace in between. Something stirred in the darkness. It started as a collection of harsh white light in the center of the room and slowly grew into the shape of a person. Belle rubbed at her eyes, certain that this must be some sort of dream. But the shape remained, floating in midair like a large moat of dust. It didn't have any recognizable facial features, yet Belle could feel the rage radiating off of it like steam. She rose from the bed, refusing to be cowed. Arun's arms held the air where her body had been seconds before. As Belle watched, the dust motes shifted. An inky black shape spread around the dust motes, solidifying its form into a hovering mass of darkness, like a bloodstain on the musty atmosphere. The spirit told her that the house did not actually belong to them. It was meant for something else. Someone else. Belle nodded her head. Her limbs were tightening, like someone was grabbing her whole body in a vice-like hold. The spirit promised they would be kind to Belle. If she left the premises, she would get $3,000. It was far more than she had paid, but she refused. There was no other house like this in the village, one that drew her, calling to her with shared memories. The grip tightened even further. Blood was racing into her face. Her cheeks heated, but the pressure had nowhere to go. It was climbing, climbing, looking for any way to relieve the pain. Then something gave way in her eye, and she saw nothing but her own blood. The spirit told Belle to think more carefully in the future. Anger surged inside of her. She had done the rituals. They had built the spirits a house. She meant no harm. 
the bones in her shoulders started to crack. Her head rolled to the side. She was barely holding on through the pain. She could only see the spirit through one of her eyes. She felt the pressure of another bone, this time in her opposite elbow. It was bending out into the air. Bell wasn't the one moving it. The arm bent further than it could, popping out of the socket. She screamed in pain. Her arm kept going. The bones were barely holding together. One by one, they snapped. Bell barely managed to nod before the whole world went black around her. Arun was screaming. Bell opened her eyes slowly, the light too bright for her. One of her eyes saw the world in vibrant red, but the other was fine. The pain hit her body slowly. She expected Arun to be next to her. The sheets on his side of the bed were cold. Her body ached and her arms felt heavy. She couldn't possibly lift herself up and go searching for him. So she called out to him instead. He ran back into the bedroom, peppering kisses across her face. Each movement of his face against hers was agony. She didn't understand how he didn't notice. He told her that some kind stranger had left them $3,000. He couldn't believe their luck. Luck? It had been paid for with her bones, her eye. There was no luck there, just an unrelenting anguish that coursed through her system. She wiped at her eye. Belatedly, she realized she could move her arm. It hadn't been shattered, but the pain still lingered as though it had. Arun looked at her for the first time, really seeing her. His mouth opened wide in horror. He asked if he had done that to her in his sleep. She didn't understand the question. He held a mirror up to her face. Her entire eye was blood red. The pupil a small speck amongst the crimson sea. She didn't know how to explain what had happened. Words failed her when she tried to speak. Arun took the money off to the bank. She spent the day sleeping, trying to erase the images of the night before from her mind. She woke as the sun sank lower into the sky, the moon rising to take its place. Arun was still buzzing about the money. Belle tried desperately to convince herself that the whole thing had been some strange fever dream. The stress of it had burst a blood vessel in her eye. Her body ached from sleeping on an unfamiliar bed frame. There was no reason to panic. When night rolled in, she almost believed the lie she told herself. He kissed her head and shuffled off to bed. She refused to turn the lights off. If something was coming for her again, she wanted to see it. Compared to the city life, the buzzing of the night insects was too loud for her ears. The sounds foreign and unpleasant, harbingers of darkness that she couldn't name. A creature in black materialized in front of her. This time it shielded its face with hair. Each strand grew outwards, stretching towards her, burning as they touched her, leaving small holes in her skin. 
Bell would not flinch this time. No matter the torment, she would stand firm. It was a dream. She was in control. The hair wrapped itself around her arm and yanked. Bell scrambled to her feet, pulling against the horrible grip. Her gaze settled on a desk by the wall. A pair of old scissors glinted from an open drawer. She inched closer and closer to the desk, swallowing her pain. She felt her arm wrench out of its socket. Finally, her hands closed around the scissors. She cut the strands from around her arm. The fallen strands climbed up her legs. She cut away at those two, refusing to give up. She hacked away at the bits until they littered the floor like dark confetti. The creature slunk back into the darkness as the first rays of light started to burn through the sky. Belle fell asleep, clutching the scissors tightly to her chest. Something slithered across Belle's face. She slapped at it wildly, hitting nothing but air. Her eyes opened slowly. There were angry red dashes along her arms and legs. A breeze blew over her. Belle frowned. There were no drafts in their house. She was staring at the sky, not the wooden ceiling she loved so much, but the bed was still underneath her. She sat up, not fully understanding. All of their furniture was outside, the exact same layout as in the house. Belle turned on her side, searching for a room. She only saw his body. His head was nearly separated from his neck, slashed several hundred times over with some sort of dull blade. Her body shook as her gaze wandered up his form, wanting to look in the love of her life's eyes one last time. But blood crusted his face in tear-like streaks. The scissors were sticking out of his eye. It is customary in Cambodia to build a spirit house before you build your actual house to reach out to the Nikta, or land guardian spirits and ancestors, and ask permission to use the land in a new way. It is both a supplication and a conversation. You demonstrate how well you'll take care of the land by occupying it in a low-impact way while you wait for the spirit's ruling. You may have to wait weeks or even months, but it's certainly better than the alternative. Coming up, the story of the ghost house gets the Hollywood treatment, but someone forgot to get the filming permits. Now back to the story. Like the culture that inspires it, the Cambodian horror film industry is truly one of a kind. The form borrows from both Japanese and South Korean elements of the genre, with a heaping helping of American-style gore. In 2005, the story of the Kampong Chanang ghost house was adapted for the screen. The crew shot on location, and rumors of the strange and supernatural 
surrounded production. Kem grew up with a love of story. He swallowed every legend and piece of family history that his parents would give him, like they were the most precious morsels he'd ever received. He hadn't known what to do with his love of story until he'd seen the newest Heng Tola film, Ghost Banana Tree. Unlike Tola's last film, this one was based on their own culture. It wasn't common to plant banana trees next to a home. As a child, Kim had been told he was too young to understand why. It was all too easy for him to imagine the fun of picking bananas straight off the tree from his bedroom window. When he was a little older, his parents sat him down to tell him a story. There was once a man who had gone away on a business trip, leaving behind his wife for several weeks. Her sickness started slowly. A stray cough, some small aches in her body, but it continued to grow until her whole body was seizing throughout the day, her skin impossibly hot. She needed help, but she was too weak to call for it. The wife died. No one from the village came to check on her. They all assumed she was fine. And yet, when her husband returned from his trip, his wife greeted him tenderly. She smiled at him, but there was something different about her eyes, an emptiness he had never noticed before. She hugged him tightly to her, putting too much pressure on his body, but he allowed it. She had clearly missed him. She needed this comfort from him. At night, he woke to find her sitting in a chair across from their bed, watching him. The wife told him to go back to sleep. She was simply planning their future together. Her words didn't entirely make sense to him, but the fog of sleep was already rolling in. He went back under. In the morning, he woke to a pile of rambutans on the table, already peeled. The reddish-pink skin with its reaching fingers of green looked like open scabs, picked and left behind. His wife hummed as she cooked. One piece of the white, translucent fruit rolled off the table and onto the floor. The man wasn't particularly bothered, digging into the cluster of other fruits in front of him. Something slithered in his periphery. He stomped his foot down on it, hard. It wasn't a snake like he expected. It was his wife's tongue. It had extended from her place at the kitchen table all the way down to the floor, trying to trap the succulent fruit. Only one creature could do that. A ghost. He fled his house and ran straight to a monk for a blessing. Then... He traveled as far as he could. Her spirit could not follow him everywhere. He was sure of that. He built a house for himself deep in the jungle. The man told himself he was safe over and over again. He would not need to leave. The banana tree was right there. He could eat and eat and never go outside again. But there was a relentless rustling outside his window. He saw movement from the corner of his eye. Before he even had the chance to take a step back, the wife was on top of him. She had climbed through the window using the banana tree as a ladder. 
Her hands grasped his neck and twisted. And, well, you know the rest. Kem had been fascinated by the tale. Each banana tree was a reminder of what could happen if one was not careful. And now it was depicted on a glossy screen. He wanted to be part of this retelling process. He needed to work for Hang Tola. Tola was preparing to shoot a new movie, The Haunted House, and he needed some assistance on the set. Kem pleaded his case several times over with assistants and managers and anyone who would listen. Finally, they let him be a part of it. Assistant to an assistant to an assistant. But he was there. And that was what mattered. They would be heading to Kampong Chenang to shoot in the mysterious ghost house. Kem knew the story well. He'd always thought the couple foolish to accept a deal with a ghost and then betray them. Spirits held more power than the living. Attempting to deceive them was ill-advised. He was excited to see the space for himself but he waited until after it had been blessed before heading to the location. The ghost banana tree had taught him that even blessings had limits, but he would rather take his chances with religion on his side than without it. When he arrived, he found that the house had grown more imposing than he had imagined. He expected shadows to cling to the land, trees to bend towards it, drawn by the power of the spirits, Instead, the land around it was cleared. The location was bright, even airy. It was a normal house with cheery teal-green paint and faded steps. Even knowing what he knew about the house, it was hard to picture the events that had happened here. The crew erected their own spirit house, and Kem volunteered to help maintain the structure, leaving fresh offerings of food and incense every day. Cheerful appearance aside, there was something about the land that made the hair on his neck stand on end. Shivers raced down his spine. He told himself he was getting swept away in the story, but that did little to calm his racing mind. The caretaker of the house, Tevi, was all too happy to offer his assistance with anything the crew might need. While other members of the crew weren't interested in taking him up on the offer, Kem was. They worked together through long days, building rigs and running back and forth between the house and the village. It was backbreaking and thankless work. But Kem decided he could be grateful. His life was about to change. <laughs> to V was strange. He laughed frequently but refused to share his thoughts with Kim. In moments when Kim had left Tavi to work on something alone, he would hear the other man whispering to the air around him. And even when Tavi was looking at him, it felt more like the man was looking through Kim, seeing something that Kim could not. But they had too much work to do for Kim to get hung up on these details. The two men stood on top of hastily erected scaffolding, Tola had a new idea for a shot, and they were supposed to test out the mechanics first. This meant another hour or two of bending and stretching, risking their lives for art. Kem joked that scaffolding would work just as well as a banana tree for a ghost. 
To V stared at him, face impassive. He told Kem that these things were nothing to joke about. You never knew what spirits might be listening. Kem focused on his work, his foot dipping close to the edge of the board beneath him. Tola ordered him to get even closer to the edge. He took another half step, his foot dangling partially in midair. Tola still wasn't satisfied. Kem scooted even closer, bracing his body as best he could. A raven flew overhead and Kem lost his balance. Tavi's hand was there in an instant, pulling him back to safety. He wasn't sure if it was the heat or his own exhaustion, but it looked like Tavi's arm had stretched to meet him, long and thin, like a piece of fleshy twine. Kem thought it must be the heat or the exertion getting to him. Tavi wasn't a ghost. It was Kem who had almost become a ghost. The man who had been his idol had almost killed him through reckless direction. He felt rage bubble up in his gut. As the day wore on, Tola's actions grew more and more irritating to Kem. Every moment of indecision, every rude command, made Kem resent the man he once thought of as a visionary. Tavi suggested that Kem take a walk. A break from the pressure of Set would help Kem cool down. But Kem's anger was deepening. His hands closed into fists. It would be easy for him to steal Tola away from Set and take control. He could make the decisions Tola was too afraid to make. He could make it his movie. He was so fixated on his fantasy that he barely felt Tavi's hand on his shoulder. Tavi asked Kem to help him with the project behind the house. A voice whispered in his head that Tavi was lying. Yet he couldn't find an excuse to say no. The rest of the crew was working. He was the only free hand. Guarded, he followed. A drafting table sat outside the back of the house. Tavi wanted to show Kem the drawings that were on it. Tola had wanted them to be plastered around the room, signs of the couple's growing distress. Vividly rendered in pencil were sketches of corpses. Their organs hung outside of their bodies, faces twisted in anguish. It was disturbing, but the strangest part was the facial features. Each version of a tortured human looked like Kem. Tavi followed behind him. The other man's footsteps were growing faster. Kem tried to speed up his own pace, but the older man was so fast and the ground was so uneven, he tripped and his body went flying. He landed on the ground, dirt scraping harshly against his skin. A hand reached down to help Kem up. The arm it was attached to was inhumanly long. Kem raised his eyes to meet Tavi. The man stood several meters ahead of him, looking down with the same pleasant expression on his face. He said he was hoping Kem would join him. He knew about Kem's obsession with ghosts. Now was his chance to be what he'd always wanted to be. Kem gaped in horror. He never wanted to be a ghost, 
He just wanted to tell stories, but he did not speak fast enough. Tavi's arms extended across the field, enveloping Kem in a horrible twisted embrace. The rest of the crew never even noticed he was gone. While possession by malevolent spirits has been reported in Cambodia, it is much more common to find a Khmer spirit medium possessed by a Barmai, a virtuous spirit often tied to mythical Cambodian heroes or historical figures. These Barmai help mediums heal the sick, counsel leaders, or deliver important religious messages. The Khmer Rouge effectively banned spiritualism in Cambodia in all its forms even making public claims that they were the master of the water and the earth. Despite this, many Cambodians found solace in the notion of the Nikta, or the land guardian spirits. They believed that these spirits, or energies, can bond with or even transform places or people. It was this quality, they hoped, that would allow the Nikta to outlast the violent suppression of the Cambodian Communist Party. This belief in the Nikta even impacted how Cambodians reacted to the Khmer Rouge's downfall. The dictator and war criminal Pol Pot died in exile in 1998 at the age of 73, refusing to acknowledge his part in the millions of civilian deaths that had occurred under his party's rule. He was cremated and interred in An Long Vang, a forest plateau near the Thai border. People still come to pay their respects, lighting incense, or praying for financial assistance. Anthropologist Annie Van Giu has studied Pol Pot's still potent influence in this region, in terms of both religion and politics, despite the dictator's own outright rejection of spiritualism. There are some who appear to still believe Pol Pot's assertion that the Cambodian genocide was a misunderstanding or a conspiracy perpetrated by Vietnam. But there's also a more optimistic take on the aura surrounding the war criminal's grave. Bit by bit, many locals say, the Nikta have taken the power Pol Pot had in life and transformed it into a benevolent and positive presence, like converting solid to liquid and back again. When discussing the strange spiritual transformation of Pol Pot's tomb, anthropologist Courtney Work points out that, in death and over time, the actual events surrounding a body and the circumstances of its death fade away. All that remains is power. So the power of the dead wherever it comes from, will always be potent in a land as full of historical suffering and death as Cambodia. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on the Kampong Chenang Ghost House, among the many sources we used, we found Courtney Work's paper, The Persistent Presence of Cambodian Spirits, Contemporary Knowledge Production in Cambodia, extremely helpful to our research. 
You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Haunted Places for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Carrie Murphy. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>